I, I find it incredibly prevalent in women where we're sort of like, oh my goodness, like I'm not sure that I belong here. Like I don't know if I belong in this room. And I think that that actually impacts, honestly, our ability to stomach some of the naysayers. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori, and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Lee Mayer, to our show today. Lee is the co-founder and CEO of Havenly, an online interior design company that makes decorating services more accessible and affordable to all. In 2013, Lee had just relocated from a small New York City apartment to a larger home with way more space in Denver, Colorado. Overwhelmed by all the furniture and decor choices to be made, Lee was frustrated by the lack of quick and simple interior design options that were available to her. As someone who never thought of herself as an entrepreneur, especially growing up with certain cultural expectations from her Indian family, Lee tried to convince all her friends to start an online interior design company that would solve the problem. After spending months in an empty home, Lee was encouraged by her sister Emily to quit her lucrative career in finance and have them both start the company together. Neither of them had interior design or tech backgrounds, but were confident that there was a need in the market. Under Lee's leadership, Havenly has raised roughly $60 million in funding from top-tier investors and is now the leader in the world of online design, while many of their competitors have struggled or even failed to stay afloat. Welcome to the show, Lee. Thanks for being with us today. Excited to be here. We're excited as well. And there's just so much to talk about your personal career trajectory and just really how you've built this, you know, pretty amazing and sustainable company, Havenly. But before going into all of that, I'd love to start from the beginning. I know your parents moved here from India to create, you know, a better life for themselves and their family. How was your childhood and upbringing? Yeah, absolutely. I think like so many immigrants to this country, my parents really put in a lot of effort into making a life for us that was remarkably better than what they felt like they could get in their home country. And so my father was actually an entrepreneur. He calls himself a small business owner, but he was an entrepreneur and he was a relatively successful one, but he put in a lot of hours. You know, it was it was rare that I would hear, I would get uh, to spend a lot of time with my dad. And so, um, but he really embodied, I think, the entrepreneurial spirit in a lot of ways. And so just by seeing their hard work, I think you get a little inspired in terms of what it can do for you as a family. He was, he was a hard worker. He started businesses. So he worked his way up from sort of being a secretary at, I think it was Merrill Lynch, to eventually running his own company and, and doing very well for himself. And I think the one thing that my parents really um, prioritized was our education. So even though my dad would work until 8.30 or 9 at night and on weekends, he would spend a lot of time reading to me and a lot of time helping me like love math. Like I remember him doing literally logic puzzles with me at the age of five. And I thought they were super fun um, because he made them really fun. And so they really prioritized our education. They were very clear that the expectation for me was, wasn't necessarily like that I would always be a straight A student, but like that I would try and work really, really hard to get there. And, and you know, as you, as you can imagine, 
that led to, you know, good grades and, and a lot of other things. And then the other thing they sort of um, did really nicely for me is they really brought me into this really supportive Indian community, which some of us um, who are Indian may, may, um, may uh, remember, which is like, you have all of these aunties and uncles that are like, ensuring alongside your parents that you're getting a good education and they're celebrating your successes. And I think as a result of that, um, the expectation that was put upon me was that I would go to a good school and that I would have a lucrative career. Um, and, and it, you know, in some ways I, I kind of make fun of it because my mom is like sort of your typical Indian mother and she was, you know, her dream was that I became a doctor. And in fact, still to this day, <laughs> she still talks about how either I could still become a doctor which is a little crazy because I'm, I'm getting up in the years. And then, you know, it's also not like I haven't had a relatively successful journey, but she's like really stuck on it. Um, <laughs> but, and my mom's like sort of classic in that way. But my, my father, you know, really, um, really sort of embedded this idea that like we can do better, we have to do better um, and, and, you know, work hard and, and, you know, be thoughtful and you'll get somewhere in life, which I, I think has really carried, uh, carried through for me in my career. Yeah, it definitely has. And really looking at your career, you've mentioned in previous interviews that you never really ever considered yourself an entrepreneur and how you're pretty risk adverse. And, you know, you have a pretty impressive resume. You went to great schools. You had reputable jobs in finance and consulting. So really, what was the impetus for you to leave that stable career to jump into the world of entrepreneurship? Yeah, it's a great question. I am really risk averse. I think that's not an unusual thing for people that grow up in families like mine. Like there's this idea, like my, again, my mom wanted me to be a doctor because she felt like it was a secure, well-paying position or and, and you know, very lucrative, but also very stable. Um, and so I think like in many ways I was, um, I was less inclined to, to think of myself as an entrepreneur. I always thought entrepreneurs were like, I don't know, they wore like hoodies or, or black turtlenecks and jeans and like showed up on the screen and talked about their vision that really didn't resonate with me and still, to be honest, doesn't. Um, I think what, you know, a couple of things happened in my life. So the first is I moved away from New York City. And I think one of the things that actually freed up for me is in New York, in particular, in like the social segment that I was sort of a part of, there's kind of, I don't want to say keeping up with the Joneses, but there is this like pathway that is very safe and lucrative. And a lot of people are on it. And, and as a result, it feels like kind of the default pathway. And it felt like the default pathway for me. And when I moved from like a coastal city that offers a lot of these sort of finance and consulting jobs to a city like Denver, where you really don't have a lot of them and certainly not very interesting ones, um, it sort of makes you do a little bit of a 360 analysis of like where you actually want to be. So it kind of pulled me away from this standard narrative of the East Coast. I think, you know, a couple of other things happen. And, and so, you know, again, my narrative, my mental narrative around entrepreneurship was, again, a Steve Jobs-like figure. And what ended up happening was um, in my class at business school and the class above me and the class below me, all of a sudden, people that I had gone to business school with had started companies. Many of them were women and women I knew. And all of a sudden, I started to realize that there was a class of people starting businesses that actually looked and felt and thought a lot more like me than I would have expected. And it, it sort of opened my eyes to this idea that like, oh, I can do it too. Like, 
interesting. You know, this isn't just the Harvard dropout um, who's a genius. It's also like women that are Indian and men that went to school with me. And, you know, like, you know, there was this like this idea that like it wasn't for me and all of a sudden it started to look and feel like me, which is why I think representation matters so much in so many ways. Um, and, but like, to be perfectly honest, I, um, I kind of fell into it. This was like on accident. Um, my little sister, so my sister is six years younger than me. And as a result, for a variety of reasons, she got a very different, had a, a very different upbringing. She certainly was a lot more Americanized um, it, than I was. And so she's actually not very risk averse. In fact, I think she's on her like fourth startup now. Um, she loves it. She loves starting businesses. And I think from my perspective, what, what happened was she was working on something else at the time. And I kind of came to her and I was like, hey, like, what about this idea? And she's like, this is great. Like, why don't we start this? And it was like, I don't know, like, that seems weird, but sure. Like, um, you know, I'll work on this while I'm looking for other things here in Denver, Colorado. And it kind of became, I don't know, it, like all of a sudden I started doing more work on this and less work on some other things. And then you wake up one day and you're like, wow, I'm actually, we're doing this. We're starting this business, um, which, uh, you know, I think largely, you know, and again, I'm sure when I think about how this came about, the reason I say it this way is people come to this world and people come to entrepreneurship um, and starting companies in a lot of different ways. Like there's no one way. It's not like everyone wakes up and is like, I have a genius idea. Sometimes you tiptoe your way into it. Sometimes you do have a genius idea and quit everything. And and there are a lot, but there are lots of like sort of flavors in between. And I, I definitely found myself in like this, oh, here I am. <laughs> so, so I thought it was, you know, it still sort of surprises me a little bit that I started a business. Um, you know, still not entirely like, you know, crystal clear how it came about, but, um, but there was, there was a slower evolution from, for me at least. Absolutely. And I think that's important to talk about because people often have an expectation that they're not really cut out to be an entrepreneur. You know, they might have not had the, you know, successful lemonade stands growing up, or they might not necessarily look the part like you had mentioned, you know, at some point, there weren't a lot of women entrepreneurs. And it was stereotypically, you know, white men in hoodies. And I think so much has changed over the years. Absolutely. And I hopefully with this podcast, you know, we're profiling women from all walks of life to really showcase that really anyone can get into business and have a great career. Totally. I think it's it's so important. I mean, like I I really like, you know, there I have I have a lot of ambivalence around um around some of the like female only type narratives. But one of the things that's really I've really loved about it is I do think, you know, five to ten years ago, there weren't a lot of us, whether it's media or creatives or entrepreneurship. Um, just seeing women going out and creating um, different things was not was not really a, a large part of sort of what was at least promoted. Um, and I and I do think that it does, at least for my personal story, and it sounds like for yours too, it's like it's the seeing other people that kind of again, broadly fit the parameters in which I think I fall, um, that like enabled me to kind of get out of my own way a little bit. Absolutely. And going back to the early days of Havenly, as we talked about, you know, you never necessarily thought you were going to be an entrepreneur. 
And in 2013, you moved from a pretty small, you know, rental unit in New York City to a larger home in Denver. And as someone who was, you know, incredibly busy in their career, you never really had the time or patience to decorate your home. And I know at that point, you were telling all of your friends to create this, you know, online service to provide interior design help that was a little bit more affordable than the traditional path of hiring an interior designer. And at some point, your sister persuaded you to, you know, quit your career at that time and really launch this business with her. So can you share more about, you know, what your life looked like at the time and the early days of Havenly for you both? It's so funny because my memories of these days are like, a little mushy because like there was so much going on, but no, she had already quit her job. She was, um, she was working on another company, another idea full time. So, um, so she had left and, and I think like largely, um, you know, I think my, uh, my parents were supportive of her doing so. She was actually living in New York city. So they were, you know, ultimately supporting her New York city, uh, living so that she could go pursue this, which is a very, big gift that I think my parents were able to give to her. Um, and I think ultimately to us, because that is what sort of ended up making me feel like, you know, her, her quitting to start a company was, was what ultimately ended up making me have the decision. I will be honest. I don't know. I think one of the, one of the interesting things is I did have a full-time job when I first started thinking about this. And then, then I believe I quit. Um, but what enabled me to quit? And this is like where I get, I get a little like nervous that, you know, if you don't have the means, if I didn't have the means, I don't know if I would have. So two things that happened for me. First, I had had some lucrative, high-paying jobs previously. Um, Second, I was married at the time. um, uh, And uh, my husband at the time um, was making plenty of money in Denver, obviously has a lower cost of living um, than some of the coastal cities, particularly at the time. And so I felt a lot of financial security. Um, and then my sister was being supported by my parents. So she felt a lot of financial security. And I think that that's actually something, a part of the narrative that people don't talk about. Like it's really hard. It's actually really hard for people that potentially don't come from those means to take the risk. I mean, I thought it was a risk and I had the money. Um, I don't know, you know, I, I worry sometimes that we leave out a whole segment of really, really talented people because they don't feel like they can take those risks in life. Um, and that makes me sort of sad. I don't have a solution for that really. But it, but I do think it's, it's um, you know, in reflecting upon the early days, that was definitely a component of what I was thinking through. Yeah. And I respect you being so open because, you know, we do hear a lot of people saying, well, I want to start a business. I want to jump in and do my own thing. But financially speaking, I still have bills to pay. I have a family I need to bring food to. And I think just walking through everybody's story of how they really built that financial security in their own lives is helpful. I mean, we've heard stories like yourselves where, you know, their husband or partner at the time was the sole breadwinner and they really scaled back their life to uh, make ends meet in that aspect. Or we've had people from all different ages really move back in with their family to save money on rent and really put any dollar they earn back in the business. So I think there's a lot of sacrifices and ways that people can go around building that financial security for themselves to really jump in. But I appreciate you just being very transparent about what that looked like for you. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, so it's funny. I was listening to um, the Michelle Obama podcast and Barack Obama was on this week. And he had mentioned something that I actually um, 
I actually really resonated with, which is this idea that like I went to these good schools um, and what the good schools bought me was the ability to drop out and try and start something and still maintain a certain level of credibility Right, um, and so he was he was being a community organizer and doing a lot of different amazing things, which is you know uh, very amazing and, and and certainly a little different from what I did. But but I think it's true. I think one of the reasons that I'm so glad my parents prioritized education is I can do you know it it affords me this opportunity to basically say I can go do something else, whether it's um, starting a company or being involved from a community perspective, and then still be assured that I will get another job. And then you add that to, um, you know, a, a dual income household without kids um, in which one person is making plenty of money to cover the expenses. And you get, but what's funny is, and this is what I'll tell you, I was, I, I was still scared. Never, I know. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that's the crazy Boy. part. I had all of the safety nets, the best, I mean, honestly, like, you know, again, great schools, a career beforehand, a, a reasonable um, ability to, I think, get a job, even if this went nowhere, yeah. and plenty of income and savings. And I was still petrified. And so, I, you know, I think I, in knowing that, I can t- only imagine what it's like for people maybe that don't have some of those things. Yeah. Um, you know what I mean? And, and, and like, that's the crazy part. Like, Again, yeah, I mean, I'm you know? right there with you. I'm like, why am I still scared even after years of really thoughtfully planning my jump yeah. and journey into entrepreneurship? But sure. there are definitely women that we've interviewed. I mean, last week we had Vicky Sai, who started, she's a founder of Tatcha, who started her business when she was already in, I think, like $600,000 in debt. But it's interesting because everybody has different levels of risk and what they can stomach. So it's always just fascinating to hear everybody's story with that and how they've approached it. So going back to Havenly, you officially launched in March, 2014. And I love just how open and real you are about this, but people have this myth that in the first year you have amazing hockey stick growth and the company's doing really well in the first year. But can you share the real realities of what your first year looked like and how you really approached it? Yeah. So I love that. I think there is, you're totally right. Like the story that's out there is like, it's like start company, question mark, question mark, question mark, exit for like billions of dollars. So you see the story between like start and glamorous exit and no one tells you about all of the struggles that kind of goes on in the middle. And the first thing about starting a company is there's like, it's overwhelming. Like you have so much to do and you have very few people. I think, you know, particularly when we started, I think it was just Emily and I, and then we hired a designer who's actually still with Havenly and is our oldest serving employee and a COO. But there's still so much to do. And and it's really, really overwhelming. And and you have no money ultimately, because we hadn't raised funding at this point. And there was only so much that we could like invest into the business. Um and you know, you don't really know how to get from zero to one. Like there's no real no instruction. There's no <laughs> instruction. And and like for people that are coming from sort of achievement oriented type jobs, like it's a it's a really bewildering experience. It's like it's like you all of a sudden are let out of this cage and you have no idea which direction to go. 
And so it honestly took us a really long time to figure out what we're doing. Like we worked on all of the wrong – I mean, there you kind of have a vague notion of what you need to do, right? Like mm-hmm. you, someone needed to code the website. So I was like, cool, cool. I have like a little bit of an engineering background. I'm going to code the website myself. Um, and so, you know, that – there's some stuff you sort of know you need to do. But there's a lot of stuff where you're like, I don't know if this is important or if this is going to yield returns or how to get my first customer or – You know, there's a lot of like kind of running around. And I think the thing that I recognized in myself that I actually think held us back is I mentioned earlier that I had friends and people I knew that had started businesses. Mm -hmm. I was too – I don't know what it was. I felt bad asking them for help or asking them for advice. I don't know what that is. I I am so glad at this stage in my, you know, in my career to like dispense advice. I don't know why I think that like someone who's been friends with me wouldn't have like happily – given me 15 minutes of their time on a weekly basis to like help me understand what to do. Yeah. Um, I don't know what I, what that was and I, I'm, I'm glad I got over it. Um, but, but that was a definite thing. Um, and so the first year was a lot of like forwards and backwards. It was a lot slower than we thought it would be. Um, we definitely, you know, did a lot of things wrong <laughs> before we did them right. Yeah. Um, but ultimately, a couple of things that we did I thought were important. So first, we just built the product. And that was like, again, I, I built it myself. So it was really poorly built. Um, but it was like we, we built a platform that like was workable and you could actually see people moving through the system. Um, we tested out. Like the big thing that we did was really validate the hypothesis that people were going to want this. And so – And how did – what were the steps – so there are a couple ways we did this. So first we did a survey. And surveys can be a little misleading, but that's like the first step, right? It's like, will people actually want this? How do they want this? How do they think about it? All of that qualitative data around how people are thinking about decorating homes and buying furniture and all of that stuff. And that just gave us enough confidence to kind of move forward a little bit. Um, and then I think, you know, the second way we did it was we actually went out there and we got, um, we did both pay, a little bit of paid marketing and we got a little bit of PR. And we tried to see if that would generate people, because there's a big difference between filling out a survey and then actually taking out your credit card and buying the thing. Totally. Right? Yep. Mm-hmm. And so um, so we did a little bit of that. I actually still remember our first customer that like wasn't, you know, friends and family or my mom. Um, yeah. Because it's like a really exciting day, right? You get some press and then all of a sudden, um, you know, things are, things are rocking and rolling and you're like, oh my goodness. And so my favorite story around this is I decided to take a vacation um, with a couple of my friends and we went to Mexico. And we, I was leaving in April of 2014, and the day that I was on the plane. By the way, I'm the, I'm our only site engineer. I noticed okay. there was a problem with our signups on the site, and I like tried to fix it. And I was like, "Oh, it's fine. Like nothing's happening. We don't have any paid marketing running yet." Yeah, and no one's coming to our site. It's okay. Yeah, it's like fine. You know, I'll deal with it when when I get connected at the hotel in Mexico. And while I was on the plane, the Houston. Chronicle, I believe, which is like the largest newspaper in Houston, did an article on us in the style section. And like no one could reach me because I'm on the plane. And like back then, like Wi-Fi wasn't a thing on a plane, really. Yeah. And um, and and it was like I landed and my my phone's blowing up, and my, you know, the two people on our team are like, Lee, like, people can't sign up on our site. Like, you need to fix this. And I was like, what? <laughs> How did that happen? And yeah. so again, you sort of you get to this point where 
you're not, you know, unexpected things happen. You have to be very sort of agile about and scrappy about getting people on the site. But it was a lot of learning, to be perfectly honest. It was um, it was a crazy time. I remember it as being a fun time. Also, like one of the things I tell people that are just starting businesses is that first year, it's like graduating from high school. It's like, it's all possibility. Like you could be an astronaut. You could be a rock star. You could be the president of the United States. You know, it's not like a fully defined path yet. So there's just, it's like all possibility. And so there's something magical about that. I, I truly am nostalgic for a little bit in those early days. I think that's just so important to talk about just really having fun, especially because in the earlier days, you can feel just so overwhelmed and feel like you're very much in the unknown, which could scare a lot of people. But if you have fun with it, I think that definitely helps you go through those difficult times. And of course, having a support system and even like if it's a small team or a family member like your sister, I'm sure that definitely helped. But what did you do in those moments where it was tough and it was difficult because it took quite a bit of time for you guys to even figure out what you wanted to to do with Havenly and really the business model around it? You know, and and I think, by the way, like this never goes away. Like there are going to be days, not just in the early days, but even today where, you know, our dailies are down or like we have a month that's an off month and, and you sort of sit there and you're like, wow, like we just didn't do what I thought we'd do. Um, and I think the best part, the difference between now and then is I've gone through so many of these ups and downs that like there's a lot more moderation in how I feel about it. In the early days, it was like, so up and down. I mean, it was, it's really, um, it's just really, you know, you get, you take it really personally. You feel like you're doing something wrong. Um, you're worried that like, it's going to go nowhere. And oh my gosh. And then, and then there's like, there's a big sort of, one of the things I recognized about myself, and I think is probably true for a lot of people is one of the scariest parts about starting a business is not necessarily that, you know, you won't be able to find another job or, you know, you won't have earnings to cover your costs, but it's like this fear of public failure, Mm -hmm. in particular as a woman, right? Like there's a bit of a spotlight on you. There aren't that many of you. Um, And you feel really naked and exposed. And I think one of the things that like kept me, has kept me up at night, frankly, for the past six years is this public fear of failure. And every time I get, you know, we get press or, or we get bigger, or we raise another round of funding, that, that, that barrier kind of goes up. Um, and I think in the early days, it was exhausting. I remember being like, you'd, you'd have these days where like you wouldn't see a lot of customers or people would have a bad experience. And you'd be like, what? I'm doing it all wrong. Mm-hmm. And it's funny how quickly um, I, I took it personally. I blamed myself in incredible ways. I I was like not pleasant to be around. Um, I'm pretty open about this. I did go through a divorce. Um, and I remember like in 2014 and 2015 when I was really going through this roller coaster, it must have been very hard to be my partner because you're, I mean, you're in a place where, or at least I was in a place where I couldn't give to anyone else. And I was very, very consumed with like, me doing things wrong and me doing things right. Um, and again, I really wish I'd done things differently and um, been a little kinder to myself and sort of, again, modulated my emotions a little bit differently. Um, but it's really, it's, you know, it's it's an all-consuming thing in your first year. It's, it's you and a machine and you're trying to make it happen. Um, and and it's, it's scary. For sure. And I think that's really crucial to talk about 
and really to have that self-compassion for yourself and not to take things so personally. I feel like, especially when you're in the earlier days of starting a company, you can be so difficult and hard on yourself. And that really isn't going to benefit anything. It's not going to benefit you. It's not going to benefit the people around you. It's not going to benefit your company. So I'm glad that we're talking about this. And I feel like with entrepreneurship, a lot of it is really a mental game. I think that's so right. I mean, like so much of this is just intestinal fortitude. It's like, it's like dealing with the challenge and being able to like wake up the next morning and be there to score another point. And I think, you know, I recognize that a lot of, a lot of my challenges in the early days came from a a mental model in which if I wasn't outwardly or measurably succeeding, I wasn't doing well. Um, and that meant I was a failure. And I think, um, disaggregating, uh, you know, our mental health and our sense of self-worth from these outward signs of doing well um, is a really important thing for people to do. And and unfortunately, our like whole system of education is really not set up that way. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like you feel good because you get an A. Um, and that's very different from you feel good because you're a good person and you have a family that loves you or you have, you know, you laugh a lot with your friends. Um, and, and I think that that's actually something, again, I've learned along the way, um, but, you know, was, was a, a hard one lesson, if that makes any sense. Totally, totally. And I think it's just so important that you're talking about this. So, you know, people can reflect on their own lives and see how, you know, how they can change the definition of success and happiness for them. So going back to the company, you talked a bit about this, how you decided to fundraise. So can you walk us through uh, just how you decided to go down the venture capital route? And I know for you, the first year of even raising money was incredibly difficult. I think I read you had about 140 rejections. So what was that experience like for you? Not good. No, no, I, I talk about it openly because I, I think it's like a large part of, of the journey and, and frankly, a large part of our journey. Um, so, you know, backing up a second. So, you know, a couple of things put me on the VC path. So if you think about like who I was at the time and who I, I think I probably still am, and that is like, I, I, I like to follow tracks. And so, you know, I don't know that I was super thoughtful about going the VC route. I just knew that like everyone else was going the VC route. So like, yeah, that makes sense. Like, that's what you do. You raise money. You know, like, again, there's sure. no for this stuff. So you just kind of follow what you see. And then, you know, in particular, I tend to be the type of person that like, you know, likes to be in paths. Um, and so that felt like, you know, as you're seeking sort of achievement, it felt like, oh, look, that's an achievement. It's an external achievement that I can achieve. And like, and it was, it was just like very weird. I think I, I would always advocate now as I talk to founders to like really think through whether or not the VC path is right for their business. I wish I had done that, frankly, um, but I didn't. And, and thus we were like, cool, um, we're going to fundraise. And so we started to fundraise nearly immediately. Um, frankly, before we even got traction, and um, and I think that was like a big mistake, and it led to a lot of rejection um, that was probably unnecessary. But but we did that, and and it was really really hard. And again, like remember, I come from a background in which I'm like you work hard and you you're sort of smart and you get a gold star, right? Like like I'm 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 
very much like not a person that is accustomed to a lot of rejection or a lot of failure. And so I went down this path and, and you're right, it was about 140 no's um, before I got my first like real committed yes. And I say this to people and, and again, I've said, this, I've said this in other forums, but I like to make this point where it's like, think about 140 rejections before you get your first acceptance in any other context in your life. Like you ask 140 guys or gals out and they say no. Um, you apply to 140 colleges and you get rejected. Like, like nowhere else in life had I experienced that. And I, I really took it, um, incredibly personally. Um, and it was a really tough thing. Like I felt like I was, um, I wasn't getting anywhere, but everyone else was getting somewhere, you know? And I felt really lonely. And again, because I felt too proud to really reach out to people, I was also unaware that they were going through similar. They had many companies that gone through similar struggles. I thought it was just me, mm-hmm. um, and it was like a really tough, tough moment. What's funny is what actually helped me stick it out. As I have this like innate stubbornness that kind of kicks in at weird moments in time. I'm just like it's just in me. It's it's like I'm an older sibling. I, I have a, <laughs> I'm like a slightly stubborn personality. Some people would argue more than slightly, um, but but it just kind of kicked in. And at some point, I was like, well, screw it. Um, I'm going to keep going until and, and prove these people wrong. Um, and and like, you know, it it really helped. Um, it really helped get me through this in in a funny way. Um, again, I wouldn't say it's necessarily always my best trait, but it is a trait I have, and it definitely sort of kicked in in this moment. And I was lucky enough, I think, you know, the the yes that I got that ultimately closed my round because it was an institutional investor. Mm-hmm. The first yes I got was actually someone who'd earlier said no to me. And I wasn't, you know, I didn't want to take that meeting again. I was like, oh, no, they're going to reject me again. I don't know how I'm going to handle that. And it turned out by that time we'd made enough traction in the business where it started to be an appealing business on its face. And this investor was like, hey, you know, like I took a look at this uh, months ago and I wasn't interested, but like this shows some legs, like let's come in and let's talk. And I was like, oh, interesting. And so the only reason I took that meeting again was because um, it would have been awkward to say no for a variety of reasons. I, I didn't want to. I like would have rather not have done that. It wasn't me outreach. I'd love, to, I'd love to say that I was like persistent and kept going at this person. That was not the case. So if you weren't persistent at that point, how did you get back in front of that VC? So what happened was we had, I had a, a mutual friend with this investor who was like, hey, like you should really take another look at Lee and then he just instead of asking me which most people do I think he realized that I was not going to want to take this meeting so he just sent an email to this investor and was like you should meet with Lee and copied me in on it and and then it was awkward for me to say no right um and so I'm, I'm grateful for that person um and in particular I just I felt um I'm, I'm grateful that that happened because I don't, I don't know that I, I personally would have gone back in that way, particularly at the time. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It taught me a lesson though. Um, it's only no for now and it's not personal. And, and, and honestly, like a lot of people don't see the merits of your company the way you do. And so you have to kind of go back to the drawing board if you're getting rejected and think about how to retell your story and your pitch in a way that resonates with them. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, again, a lot of, a lot of hard learned lessons, but it, that was a good lesson to learn. For sure. And I know at the time, because this is when I was in tech, there was Laurel and Wolf, right? And Home Polish. And they were, and Laurel Laurel and Wolf was based in LA. And they were raising rounds at crazy valuations. Their team was growing, they were hiring. And now, fast forward, you know, they're both not existent. So looking at your trajectory versus, you know, your two competitors at the time, what do you really think is the differentiator? I think, 
you know, and it's, it's the hard, I think the biggest thing that I've noticed, and this goes beyond just my industry. And I think it goes, um, it goes across tech. Um, sometimes, and you've seen this more recently with like SoftBank funded companies, for example, um, you can have, uh, you can die by starvation. You can also die by, um, by overfeeding. And I think that that is, um, largely, I, I, you know, I, I'm a little closer to the Laurel and Wolf story than I am to the whole home polish story because Laurel and Wolf was like a more direct competitor to us. But if you remember, like at the time they were also funded by Benchmark, which is like, you know, it's like the Tesla VC funds, like they, you know, high, you know, a, a lot of like very high flying investments and a very, very famous partnership. Um, and so when Benchmark invested in Laurel and Wolf at, you know, at, I think they put in like 20 million or 25 million or something. And we were out there and we'd only raised a million and a half dollars. Right. So, and, and I remember getting that news and like people in tech are like, well, you're done. You know, you're done. Like, how could you possibly survive that? Um, Cause benchmark invested. Um, and I think like there's a little bit of this fallacy in the Bay area that you are only as good as the investors that have invested in you, or you are only as good as how much capital you've taken in. And I think largely that's proven to not necessarily be true. Sometimes it is true. Many, many, many times it's not. Um, and in fact, it's quite the opposite. Like I think what ended up happening a little bit with um, companies like Laurel and Wolf is like they took inappropriate lessons from different companies. So our business is not one in which you can just throw money at the problem and marketing and have it scale. It's it's a thoughtful consideration funnel. It's not a recurring business. You really have to be pretty artful about how you're spending your capital here. And I think what ended up happening was because, and you know, I, I have no idea how benchmark runs, but like my I suspect that like you know, you're sitting in in the West Coast and you're looking at the success of like an Uber um, and, you know, Benchmark and invest in Uber and like some other companies like that that were that were really spending in incredibly uh, high amounts of cash to like grow their customer base. But they had a, Uber is a very different business than an interior design firm for a lot of reasons that we can go into. And so you sometimes end up taking these lessons from companies that really don't operate. Like the physics of our company is very different from the physics of another venture-backed company. And you have to like be very thoughtful about identifying where it's similar and where it's different. And so I think like that's not to say, by the way, that you shouldn't take money from – take as much money as you can. And, and that's not to say you shouldn't take as much money from like really fantastic investors. I think that that's always good. But I, I worry a little bit about sometimes the echo chamber that exists on the, on the West Coast that doesn't allow for – potentially an entrepreneur to really think about what makes sense for their business. Um, and as it related to, you know, some of our closest competitors, I'll tell you, like, when I got the news too, like, I was sitting there being like, well, I mean, should we pull out? Like, this is like, this is crazy. Can I even compete with these people? And again, I learned, I learned a good lesson in compet competition, which is like, but funding means nothing. Like external um, announcements of funding. By the way, the only thing it should really tell you is that company is still unprofitable. Yeah, and I know you've mentioned in the past with fundraising, you're like, why are people congratulating me? We're not even profitable yet. I know. It's like I'm always confused about that too. I'm like, I'm like, yeah. I just had to. I had to raise thirty million dollars because like I am not profitable. Like that is that is not a good thing. My my dad makes a ton of fun of me for that. By the way, he he always goes, you know, in my day we used to just spend less than we made. Yeah. You know, like 
<laughs> like very, very like dad-like advice, right? But it's it's true. And so, you know, I learned that like, first of all, you never know from the outside what's going on in the company. Um, there are lots of reasons that companies struggle and succeed. And I think being, you know, there, there are a lot of good things about competition. I think competition can expand markets um, and really help bring awareness to a category, particularly like ours, which is a new category. But, you know, the, the reality of, about competition is like, you're almost always, you know, trying to grow, like if, you know, you're almost always trying to grow the market. So it's like, you kind of have to like, you know, they exist, you learn from them if you need to, you, you know, hopefully they keep you, um, they keep you motivated. But like, ultimately, you're out there trying to, I'm trying to build a business that conquers a $150 billion annual business. Mm-hmm. Looking over here at like a little and wolf and, and home polish or even us, we're, we're a very small segment of the market. So like let's let's like look beyond competition and and you know again have a little bit of moral center around and vision around where we want to go, um, and 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 try and to the best of our ability drown out the noise. I do think by the way being in Denver was helpful. Um, I think like not having to go to all of the events and you know how these things go. You go to the events and everyone's talking about who raised money and how they're doing and like the craziness of one company and the success of another. And you just get in your head about it. I think being outside of it was actually really, really helpful in a lot of ways, particularly for just even like my mental sanity and being able to keep that clarity and focus on where we're trying to go. Yeah. I think that's really important to really build, you know, like a cocoon for yourself when building a business, because you need to stay so focused on what you're doing and your mission. And it's so easy for external factors to get in the way, which, you know, is definitely something that you did. And I'm sure being removed and in Denver definitely helped. So one thing you've also been pretty vocal about is how in the past you had a pretty healthy case of imposter syndrome. I'm sure a lot of our listeners, including myself, can also really resonate with this. Do you have any tips or advice on really how you've dealt with that over the years? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, imposter syndrome for me is predates certainly starting this company. I've always felt like, um, like even going back to like college, I always felt like I was the admissions mistake. Like I was the one that they like, they like, I like somehow snuck in under the wire, (laughs) you know, like same thing with jobs. I'm like, Ooh, man, did I bamboozle them? Or like, you're like, Oh, you know, did I, um, do they know that I'm here? Do they know that they accepted me? You know, like I've always had that. Um, and I, I think, you know, as I've talked to many, many women and even men, I think men have this as well, but I I find it incredibly prevalent in women where we're sort of like, oh my goodness, like, I'm not sure that I belong here. Like, I don't know if I belong in this room. Um, And I think that that actually impacts, honestly, our ability to stomach some of the naysayers, right? Because when when you feel that way, when someone's like, um, no, your company is definitely not going to make it. Or like, you're definitely not going to succeed versus this other person. You're, you internalize it. You're like, oh yeah, I'm not going to. And then, you know, and the, and the thing is about things like entrepreneurship is it's, again, it's like your ability to every day bring everything you have to the table in the morning. And if every naysayer sort of takes a little bit of pep out of your step, it really makes an impact. It means that you're not showing up for your team. It means that maybe you're not putting your all into pitches. It means maybe you're not like focusing in the same way. And it's it's a real thing. I really do think it creates a drag on performance and in particular performance of, of early entrepreneurial teams. And so, you know, again, like as I've been more open about this, I mean, by the way, first of all, we all think it's just us. Like it's not just us. A hundred percent of people feel this way at some point in their life, right? Yeah, this a thousand is, percent. I mean, you're like, 
Unless you're like a total narcissist and that's like a different story. Um, (laughs) You really like pretty much everyone has felt this way at some point. And so as I've started to talk about it more openly, I realized that it wasn't me. Like it's not, I wasn't the only person sitting there being like, I'm the admissions mistake. Like, you know, a hundred to a thousand other people were probably sitting there in that same room being like, oh my goodness, like I'm the admissions mistake. Um, And so I I continue, honestly, it's, it's not, it's not something I think you grow out of, but I do think you can acknowledge not, you know, at this point in time, I've come to a point where like, I can name it and acknowledge it and even talk openly about it. And I find that what it gets me is um, a lot of people sort of coming into that space with me. And, and that helps, right? It helps me understand that the imposter syndrome is not unique to me, that everyone feels this way. And it makes me feel more normal. And it makes me feel like I'm I'm okay. And maybe I'm not an imposter. And maybe I'm not the admissions mistake. Um, you know, and so and so it definitely like I'm glad I'm more open about it. Because um, it's definitely helped me sort of center myself in a different way. Totally. And I think just really identifying when those types of feelings come up is also yeah. really key and important. Yeah, or even like finding like a personal advisory board or like people you really trust to basically be like, hey, I don't know if I belong in this room. And then honestly, sometimes I don't belong in some rooms, right? And and I have, I have enough of a trustworthy relationship with some of some of my mentors and and advisors where they won't be like, "No, that's, you know, maybe you shouldn't raise for like raise that much money." For example, is a good one. Or and then sometimes they'll be like, "What are you talking about? You guys are crushing it. Like don't worry about it. Like don't, you know." Um and so I think having a little bit of of that honesty with a group of people you really trust that'll be able to be like, you're fine. Or, hey, no, this is really, you should really think about the underlying issues. And and that, again, makes it less personal. It makes it more supportive. And then you, you're also getting the honest feedback that you sometimes might need around what you should be focusing on, what you shouldn't be. I love that. No, that's so true. And I would love to get your perspective. So you mentioned, you know, the tribe of mentors you have right now, but really starting out, you were kind of more so embarrassed to ask for help and you didn't really have that community. So what really changed and how did you kind of find that team of mentors that clearly have helped so much? So, um, and again, I, I, I don't love to bring in always the personal, but I, I believe this, this side of the story is like important to just sort of where I was. Um, so I don't know if there's anyone that's gone through a divorce that doesn't view it as a very public failure. And what's interesting about that is like it happens and everyone knows about it. And it felt like, oh my gosh, like what an incredible failure in my personal life. And again, this was happening as I was starting a company. So, you know, there, there was just like a lot going on. What's interesting though, is it kind of forced me into a place where like I had to ask for help. Like I had no other options. I was alone in a city where I was new. So I'm from the East Coast of Denver. It was like a very foreign city to me. I was starting this company. Um, I didn't know what to do. I was really like sort of depressed and sad. And it just put me into a place where I was like, man, if I don't, if I don't reach out a little bit and like start talking about this stuff, um, I'm gonna, I'm gonna drown. Um, and I, I, I sort of appreciate that moment because it taught me both resiliency and openness. And it taught me that like, again, if you're vulnerable, people respond with vulnerability and support back and there's nothing wrong with that. Um, and, and I think that like, it was, it was like a very interesting thing where this, like this very personal moment suddenly made me realize that like, gosh, like, what what's so bad about asking people for help? <laughs> you know, like why was I so hesitant to do so? Um, but it really did take like that that relatively large, you know, what I thought was a, a very large personal failure um, to kind of get me there. And that's kind of it's interesting. And I'm, again, sad that I didn't realize this 
before that moment in time. Um, but again, it, it really, it helped me open up my journey in a different way. I think I'm more authentic because of it. I think, um, you know, and I'm, I'm still like, I still sometimes worry in some ways, in particular when like the person is very busy or very successful, I, I worry, right? Um, but I and, but I have now this mental narrative where it's like the worst they can do is say no. they don't have time. Yeah, for exactly. You know? <laughs> You're like, it's like, really not, not that big of a deal. Totally. Yeah. Right? Like, it's like, okay, like, I get that. Um, that's not personal. Yeah. When I say that to someone, it's not personal to them, right? So it's like, yeah, okay, like, that's the worst that can happen. And I could probably get through that, right? Yeah. Um, so so I think being able to sort of reframe, because we all have, like, this mental soundtrack that goes on in our head. And so overriding your mental talk track with, like, a, like what, what's, let's, like, identify the worst thing ever, you know, that can ha- come out of this helps, I think, also bring me out of my shell and, and, and be a lot more open to sort of both being open, but also asking for help. Yeah. And I'm sure the more you ask, the more comfortable you get with it. And if you hear no's, you begin to just get immune to it at some point. No, it's totally true. It's like, I will, I mean, like definitely like between the events of fundraising and being like, having that be really, really tremendously difficult and hearing a lot of no's. And then some of these personal events, I got to a point where it was like, literally, I don't know. I mean, certainly worse things could happen to me. I know that, but like most of the things that I'm asking for or doing, like would not result in worse, those worse things. Right. Totally. So I'm like, I'm like, you know, again, like you saying no, well, you know, that's 141. You know? Yeah. <laughs> like, that's funny. Well, for sure. Cool. <laughs> totally. Totally. And you know, one thing we didn't touch upon on this interview yet that I'd love to talk about is, you know, during the process of starting your company, you also had two little boys, right? I mean, I'm sure they were quite young at the time. So, you know, people always think you can't really manage a high growth company and be a mother. You know, what was your experience like? And what advice do you have for women who are, you know, trying to take that next step in their life to lead or start a business? Yeah, great question. I, I do want to clarify, um, because I, I do think this is easier. I'm a stepmom, so okay. they're not my own natural born children, which does mean that while I love them and I care for them, they do have other support systems elsewhere sure. as well. Um, and But we are a very modern family here in the Mayor Michael household, and that's really fun as well. I do th- I do think, though, like, you know, and, and like every other person in the world right now, I think we're, we're juggling a lot of things and we're juggling work and life. And I think the the interesting part and the balance that I've kind of gotten to um, is like I – first of all, I love my job. So, so – and that really helps because I'll do it honestly – regardless of, you know, if I, if I don't, I'm basically doing it if I don't have anything else to do. So that's helpful. And it allows me a lot of flexibility. And, and I recognize that not everyone has that kind of flexibility and, and dedication to their, to their work. Um, but the, the thing that I will say is like, sometimes you get this impression that you have to do it all, right? Like that you, like, and, and you, people get really emotional about parenthood too. And like what it does, it turns what ultimately sometimes is like a logistics problem. Like the kid needs to go here into an emotional problem. Oh my God, am I a bad mom or bad stepmom for like outsourcing their learning or their soccer practice or whatever. And it's, and I think that that's actually something that we should keep in mind. I don't think men do this in the same way. I think women do this and and we do this because society puts it upon us. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like, you're a bad mother. If you're not at home being like an angelic, beatific full-time mother, 
you know, it's like, it's like, it's like, oh yeah. Like you're not cooking dinner for your husband at home. What a terrible wife you must be. Um, or like, oh my goodness. Like you weren't there for pickup and you had a nanny come how to, or like you get it even like even earlier, like in pregnancy and breastfeeding, like this whole, like you cannot have a bag of Doritos when you're pregnant because like you have to eat all, you know, like we get the, we, we put these like insane emotional standards on women, which is like completely unreasonable. And like, by the way, men don't get any of it. Yeah. Like the, sh- the sorry, I'm cursing, but the crap that my husband feeds the kids, like women do not get away with that. You know, like it's like, totally. it's like, you know? And so I do think that there's like this weird narrative around women that like somehow we have to be the caretakers and we have to think about juggling career and kids. And like men don't. Men just go for career and it's okay if the kids have a full-time nanny or go to daycare or in school. And so I think the way that I say this is like, first of all, don't put emotional weight. I know it's hard to do, but like try your best not to put emotional weight on purely logistical decisions. Like if you need to be at work and your kid's school is closed, you need to find a nanny or a pod or something, something for them to do. That is okay. It is okay because your kids are going to see you successfully thriving in their career and that is going to be a really good thing for them long term. I think the second thing is like sometimes your family needs more, sometimes your work needs more, and that's okay too. Like you're going to balance. There are weeks that you're going to spend a lot more time at work and that's got to be okay. And there are going to be weeks in which like your kid's sick or is going through a tough time or has a lot going on and you're going to have to like balance that as well. That's okay. And the third is find an incredible partner that believes all of those things. Not a lot of them do. Um, And like my ex-husband did not. I would argue like a lot of men, even though they sort of say, say they believe in like sort of equal distribution of work, the data shows that that's not true. Most men actually don't believe in equal distributions of work. And so demand that from your partner. Um, I've had these conversations with my partner in particular as well, because my husband in particular, because it's like, I do think he believes it, but like there's a difference between like sort of mentally believing it and then actually showing that you believe it. Right. And so, and so I I think that that's, you know, Sheryl Sandberg said that that was like the most important professional decision you're going to make. I totally think it's true. Um, If your partner does not like, is your, if your partner has this like narrative in his head or her head about like you coming home and cooking dinner, like even if he, he or she doesn't like necessarily believe it or like say it if that's what's in his or her head it's gonna come out um and so and so you just have to be really open about it and and try to try to understand and then also like remember that you know careers ebb and flow and like right now my job is more stressful I think than my partners at some point that may switch mm-hmm. and and being able to be flexible and willing to give the other person space to be the trailing spouse, space to be the leading spouse professionally, I think is also very helpful. Wow. All of that is just such good advice. And I think one thing that really stands out is just communicating when and you know why you need help with something when it comes to kids. And we also had another woman on our podcast, Ashley Merrill. She's a founder of Lunia and both her and her husband are entrepreneurs. They both started their businesses around roughly the same time and had two kids simultaneously. And she was opening up and saying, you know, even though he's one of the most supportive partners I could ever ask for when it comes to my career and just what she's up to, she really had to communicate certain things when it came to managing and helping with kids that he didn't necessarily think about automatically. And really once they had that conversation, 
conversation, she said it was really a game changer for them. Um, but I know having kids is just an entirely different ball game. It totally is. It totally is. And and honestly, like there's a lot of I think one of the things that I've learned about it is like there's a lot of messiness to this. And like nothing's all you know, nothing's perfect and it's it's gonna be okay. Like just this like like having someone to be able to say, It's gonna be fine. We're gonna figure it out. I get that you have to work until ten. I'll deal with it. Or like, hey, I need to work until 10. Can you deal with it? I think it's just like having a little bit of that and and having grace in that relationship is so important. Yeah, such wise words, you know, really having that grace in your relationship as well. But I want to close with one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. What does that mean to you? I... That's such a good question. And, and, you know, I've been thinking about that in a, in a number of different contexts. I've realized that, like, for me, a lot more of what I think about and care about is, like, um, is being able to develop a life in which I have a lot of love and support and laughter. Um, if you know me um, well, you know that, like, the number one thing about me is, like, I love to laugh. Like, I just – I really – I'm an extrovert. I Nothing's so serious in life to like not be able to like poke fun at it. Um, and, and I think being able to be free and flexible to do so, I think is just like such a gift. Um, and I think, you know, for me, you know, money is a component, I suppose, but it's never been, if that were what I was chasing, I would have stayed in New York and done the, the thing, you know, um, that's not really what I was chasing. I'm chasing, I think I'm chasing a life in which I've got some meaning. I'm, I've got people around me that I really love and care about. I'm working on something that I really feel passionately about. I'm building stuff. Um, and you know, I get to come home and, and have a supportive family and, and friend structure and, and have a lovely glass of wine, uh, you know, on Saturday night and, and, laugh about our week. Um, so, you know, I do feel very lucky. I feel like I've, you know, we've definitely gotten to the point where I feel like I have a lot of those elements in my life. Um, and so, you know, even though this year has been so crazy for a lot of external reasons, um, it's also brought, I think, uh, a, a finer focus on just how fortunate I think we are. Um, and, you know, I, I know I know it's like a cliche to be like I'm so blessed, but I truly feel like I've gotten very, very lucky in a lot of very, very different ways. Yeah, that's so beautiful. And especially like you mentioned in the pandemic, I think for a lot of people it just really recentered us on what really matters and totally. takes the noise out of things that were just like material, you know, things that made you happy or or whatnot. So I think that's totally. just so beautiful to hear. But thank you, yeah. Lee, for joining us. It was such an awesome conversation. I'm so glad you took the time. Thank you. It was wonderful to see you. Thanks for having me on. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.